pills to bring out the glitter, she looked like a well-preserved old lady. I had a bottle of scotch older than she was, and I can't afford a vintage label. Amos, I said, if it makes you uncomfortable, you can call me Mr. Walker. She caught my eye in one of the mirrors. Hers were a very deep brown, almost black, but too warm to bridge that gap. But you can get any effect with contacts. Eyes had gone the way of lips, breasts, noses, and hair as protein as a sandhill. I hadn't bothered to crack the big book of facial features since before I renewed my license. Comprendo. You don't want your picture took with me. Okay. You like, let's see, the oldies but the goodies, no? The platters, the drifters, the Dave Clark four, five. I'm not eighty. Your stuff's fine. It's got a beat and you can dance to it. If you've consulted your physician first, it's your personal protection I don't like. Big bad Benny's turn-ons include arson and pulling the skin off DEA agents. Talk to my manager. He hired him. She smoothed an eyebrow with a little finger. A holy icon was painted on the nail in glittering red and gold. I'm Helia, but I guess you know that. She pronounced the name as if it started with H. I do. I saw you once on MTV when my K. Kaiser tape ran out. She filled and emptied her celebrated lungs. I apologize, okay? In my country, you were born either before the coup or after. It's a wide space between. You learn to translate. I moved her shoulder. It would have taken more than an armed military takeover of her government or mind to draw attention from the Helia phenomenon. She was Carmen Miranda, Ricky Martin, and the Baja Marimba Band all rolled into one 96-pound package. They were splitting and splicing words in order to pigeonhole her. Rock salsa, Cuban hip-hop, jalapeno pop. She sang and danced in front of back-projected hydrogen bomb explosions in stadiums and concert halls and on military bases, owned a record label and a Hollywood production company, and had signed with United Artists to be the next Bond girl. Two years before, she'd made the rent on her fourth-floor walk-up in East L.A. by dubbing in the voice of a cartoon cat on Little Frisky's commercials. In the meantime, she'd broken up half the storied marriages on the West Coast, served six months probation for illegal possession of a controlled substance, and performed 80 hours of community service for running a red light, broadsiding a Bel Air cop and spilling his coffee. The only thing the Christian right and the politically correct left had agreed on in years was the importance of tying a bell around Helia's neck. That was why the security was so tight at Kobo, and I was picking up cigarette money patting down people in line at the entrance for fragmentary grenades. I heard someone say you're a private detective. I didn't know they did this kind of work. I didn't either until I bounced a check off Detroit Edison. What kind of work do you do when your checks don't bounce? I look for people who went missing, as I recall. Oh. Her face fell as far as a face can fall on her side of twenty-five, but before that I caught a golden snap of light in her eye. She was going to do just fine in the movies. I looked at my watch. I didn't have any place to be, but I'd drunk a thermos full of coffee outside, and the gurgling music had begun to have its effect. If it's my fast draw you wanted to see, I haven't greased my holster since Christmas. Are you good at following people? She stopped looking at me in the mirror. She'd half twisted my way, resting an elbow on the back of her chair and letting the kimono fall open to expose a caramel thigh. Her bare foot was stuck in a slipper that was just a strip of leather and a pom-pom. 
She had a high arch and a pumiced heel. That altered my opinion of her a little. You can always tell a woman who works on her feet by how well she takes care of them. One of the things I'm best at, I said. She studied my face for irony. Her brows were steeply arched as well, undyed black in contrast to her hair, and she had a good straight conquistador nose, a strong chin, and a fragile upper lip. No collagen there to turn it into a slice of liverwurst. The bones were good. Age would not harm her. She said, I have a thief in my employ. You can follow her, yes? Find out who she is stealing it for? I will pay you ten percent of the value of what she has stolen so far. How much has she stolen? Seventy-five thousand dollars. I can follow her, yes, I said. Chapter Two You can tell more about an entertainer's career by whether you've ever heard of him than by who he's opening for. If the name is unfamiliar, he's on his way up, sharing a bill with a big star. If you remember him vaguely, he's on his way down with an armload of anvils, warming the stage for a Johnny or Janie come lately who was in diapers when he was headlining in New York and Vegas. Helios' opener was a country crossover whose first hit had been his last, and his most recent exposure had been an Entertainment Tonight feature on his release from Detox and a riches-to-rag spot on Behind the Music. The underwear being flung at him by the women at Kobo had plenty of lycra. From where I stood, his hip swivel seemed to have developed a hitch, and he couldn't hit middle C with a shovel. But from backstage, even the best acts always looked like open mic night at the pig and whistle. In any case, I wasn't being paid to follow the program. I only had eyes for the wardrobe mistress. Her name was Caterina Munoz, and like many women trained to match a $300 scarf to a pair of crocodile pumps, she dressed like a fire in the big top. She was a dumpy sixty, with her hair chopped short and dyed bright copper, and she had cut a hole in a painter's drop cloth and stuck her head through it on her way out the door. I watched her using a portable steamer to take the creases out of a dozen of Helia's costumes hanging from a rack on wheels and wondered what she was spending the money on, since it didn't appear to be clothes. According to Helia, the Munoz had sold a pirate photograph of her employer trying on the gown she'd planned to wear to the Golden Globe Awards in January to a supermarket tabloid, which had run it on the front page. This had forced Helia to spend another seventy-five grand on a replacement gown. She'd shown me pictures of herself wearing both outfits. I used more material cleaning my revolver, but that wasn't the point. Without quite resorting to a pie chart, She'd convinced me the surprise factor on the red carpet outside the arena was worth a couple of million in good press. No surprise, no sizzle. What makes it Katarina, I'd asked. Anyone can sneak a picture. She was the only one present at the fittings, apart from the designer. Signor Darbo makes tons more money keeping his design secret than he ever would selling the details. Everything about that made sense, not counting the name Signor Darbo. Now the Grammys were in the shoot, and she wanted me to nail the wardrobe mistress in her contact before history repeated itself. With a tour of Canada and tap after Detroit, she was reasonably certain the next exchange would have to take place locally. That meant a tail job. And with my $500 a day rate guaranteed and a payoff of $7,500 if I delivered, I could spend the rest of the winter sopping up the sun on a beach in Cleveland. Munoz was busy throughout the concert. The hardest part about keeping an eye on her was staying out of the way of an army of grips and talent wheeling pianos, a harp, banks of lights, and set pieces throughout the wings at Grand Prix speed. 
The place smelled of perspiration, ozone, animal-friendly cosmetics, marijuana, and all the other indispensable effluvia of show business. I saw a relationship consummated in a stairwell, overheard someone giving someone else complicated directions to the local cocaine connection, and almost tripped over a female backup singer having a full-blown anxiety attack during a cellular telephone conversation with her analyst in Pasadena. There was enough material there to keep an enterprising private detective in business through Thanksgiving. Meanwhile, the woman under surveillance recycled the costumes as needed, catching discarded articles of clothing on the fly, handing out changes, and sewing split seams with an arsenal of needles and spools of thread from an emergency basket she carried slung over one shoulder. I saw Helia naked many times. She peeled out of her wonder bras and sweat-soaked bikini panties and rigged up for the next number without bothering to seek cover, while the hundred or so supernumeraries, most of them male, boiled about her showing all the interest of vegetarians at a steak fry. I got tired of looking at it myself, but then the whomping guitars, amplified drums, and laser effects had my head hammering like Sunday morning. And anyway, there wasn't a major magazine in the country that hadn't featured every pore of her body at one time or another. It was an athletic body, but without a G-string or a halter top to call attention to the racy parts, it was just a slipcase for her talent. The scalpers were getting 500 bucks per ticket, and she gave the victims their money's worth. Her brand of juiced-up Latino music had been burning down the competition from rap and third-generation rock for months, and she showed no signs of coasting. At the climax, she climbed into a harness attached to a boom and soared around the auditorium 50 feet above the audience's heads, belting out her chart-topper of the month over a radio headset and flapping a pair of electrified butterfly wings that would have blown every fuse at Tiger Stadium during the 1984 World Series. She had a voice, too. What could be heard of it above the roar from the seats? It chilled spines and tightened every scrotum the side of Windsor. When the concert finished, a flying wedge of Kobo security guards formed around her with Benito, the born-again Chicano at the point and swept her down to the basement in the private exit the Detroit police had cleared for her escape. The announcer, a squirt in a pompadour with an exposed heart and lungs printed on his T-shirt, gave her 15 minutes, then announced over the PA system that the butterfly had flown. More security appeared to usher out the fans and prevent the seats from being torn loose of their bolts. I hung around while Munoz packed Helia's costumes into a wheeled trunk, taking note in a memorandum pad as she did so of missing buttons, broken zippers, and ripped linings. Off in an untrafficked corner, yesterday's country pop powerhouse stood smoking a conventional cigarette with this month's rent written all over his face. The wardrobe mistress accompanied a pair of grips in the elevator to basement parking and watched while the trunk was locked away in an unmarked van. I went along, attracting less notice than the elevator carpet. I stood between a couple of cars, pretending to fish in my pocket for my keys while she chirped open the lock on a rental Toyota and got in. She had a 9 by 12 manila envelope in one hand. Helia had arranged a slot for me near the van. I climbed under the wheel of the venerable cutlass and tickled a big plant into bubbling life. I had replaced a carburetor recently, steam-cleaned the engine, and yanked the anti-pollution equipment I had installed to clear my last inspection. The body was battered, the blue finish broken down to powder, and thirty blistering Michigan summers and marrow-freezing lake-effect winters had cracked the vinyl top, but I could hose Japan off the road in a headwind. I gave her until the exit ramp, then pulled out and followed. I wanted a look at what was in the envelope. 
Munoz's megastar employer was staying at the Hyatt Regency in Dearborn, for the very good reason that after three decades of recovery from the riots, Detroit had yet to harbor a hotel where the silverfish didn't have a key to the executive floor. When the Toyota turned west on Fort, I thought that was where she was headed. When she swung north on Grand and made a left on the Dix Highway, I was sure of it. Then she made another left on Taverner, and we entered a foreign country. Delray, the old Hungarian section southwest of downtown, had been going steadily Mexican since the 1990s. Carniserias and Mexican restaurants had opened in former pastry shops and gypsy storefronts. And on Cinco de Mayo, the streets teemed with pretty senoritas, well-kept children and native-dressed in mariachis. It was February, and only the Spanish signs and one old woman in a headscarf carrying home a sackful of fresh-slaughtered pollo identified the area apart from the many other neighborhoods, trying to make the long, slow climb from hook shops and crack houses toward lower-middle-class respectability. The current mayor's face smiled out from a ragged poster carrying the legend, Volta Si, Port of Detroit. The Toyota turned down a side street and parked in a lot next to a building with a sign on it, warning drivers in Spanish and English that it was for residents only. It was the sort of building that had been new when sharing the same roof with a few dozen other families was considered novel and suspiciously European. Its sandstone corners were worn round as loaves of bread, and the arched windows near the roof appeared to be holding up their skirts to avoid contact with the three rows of prosaic rectangles beneath their feet. But a decade ago, the whole thing had been headed toward demolition, and most of the glass panes had only recently taken the place of weathered plywood. I drove past, turned around in the driveway of a Queen Anne house with a scaffold in front, and parked across the street from the apartment building. The Toyota was still there. Its driver was not. It was a clear winter night, no snow, but the moon was as bright as halogen. On my way to the front door, I made a detour and peered through the rental car's windows, front and back. There was no sign of the manila envelope on any of the seats. A Mexican in his forties, built close to the floor but powerfully, opened the gritted glass door when I thumbed the buzzer marked Superintendente. He had on a navy sweatsuit and black work shoes, but his face belonged between a sombrero and cross bandoliers. He was broad and brown and wore two heavy black bars, one above the eyes and the other under the nose. He combed his thick black hair straight back without a part. Habla inglés? I asked. I hoped the answer was C. I'd exhausted my high school Spanish. A little. It came out flat, even with the accent. I gave him a glimpse of the sheriff's star the county wasn't using anymore. Caterina Munoz. You don't look like a...